Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Episode 175, The Bowery Boys 2014 New Year's Eve Roundup. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We're trying something a little different. This is uh, an experiment. If this is your first show, your first time listening to us, stop what you're doing and go to our back catalog. Go to our last episode, The Rockettes, which is pretty good. What we're doing with this show, we wanted to kind of take account of 2014. This has been an especially unusual year in New York City, I'd say. And so we kind of wanted to present our thoughts. You know, we normally look at New York City's past. And so there's been enough unusual things happening this year that I thought, let's just take a break and look at this past year. But bear with us because we're kind of new at this. You know, we're used to talking about Peter Stuyvesant and Boss Tweed. But right now we get to mention names like Bill de Blasio and talk about gentrification. You know, these kinds of fun topics. We're letting our hair down. We're going to unplug, although obviously not really unplug or you wouldn't hear us right now. Let our hair down and just do a show with with no notes. On top of looking back at the year, we're also going to read some questions from listeners. And at the very end of the show, we have about 10 or so resolutions for how we can all make 2015 a better year for the for the history books to come. We'll give you some tips on how to promote and protect New York City's heritage wherever you're at. And throughout it all, we're going to be raising a glass uh, to each other <laughs> and to you, the listener, for joining us in this wonderful journey of 2014 and hoping that you'll stick with us into 2015. And because this is kind of a holiday party and festive celebration, we've dimmed the lights, we've got a Christmas tree in the other room, mm-hmm. and we have some some bubbles right now <laughs> in two glasses in front of us, and I think we're starting with the bubbles before moving uh, to the red. <laughs> More to the red, I agree. So let's get this party started. Join us as we look back on 2014.
So as some of you may know, and we'll perhaps elaborate on this later in the show, neither Tom and I are native New Yorkers, meaning that we were not born here. I was born in Missouri. Tom was born in, what was that place? Ohio. Right. You know, who isn't from Ohio? Probably like, it is true that like half the city might be from Ohio. Now, I moved here in December of 1993. So I've been here for a while. I have, for most of my life in New York City, lived here under two mayors, both of them Republican mayors, Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. So... Technically, if you moved here in December, and in you, weren't, yes, you were in the right. last days of Dinkins. <laughs> but I can assure you, my first month in New York, I didn't know the name of the mayor. I barely knew my own name. So I was really looking forward to 2014. I would be living in a city under a Democratic mayor. For the city elected Bill de Blasio, and he was sworn in in January of 2014. But to, to step back for one second from January 1st, in order to sort of frame the little party that we're getting ourselves into and worked up about, we're, we're looking at the events, right, of 2014 that we think that future... Bowery Boys would want to talk about. What will the history books say a hundred years from now about the year 2014? Right. So when our consciousnesses are uploaded into a mainframe and then stored and then turned into sentient beings and mm -hmm. then carted out a hundred years from now to look back at this year, what are the kind of things that they might be? You're looking at me funny. <laughs> I watch a lot of Futurama. What am I going to say? Yeah, no, so, no, keep going with it. Keep going. <laughs> so anyway, what will they? What will they find important? What are the kinds of stories? will seem important, will have made an impact on the city. But since you you just let off, you sped right into the story of sure. de Blasio's inauguration on, on January 1st, I, I take it that you think that that will be sort of a bold-faced, underscored history story from 2014. Well, you know, I think the jury's still out. I don't think that we can properly say right now. He's had some speed bumps, definitely, including there was a whole snow removal fiasco right. in January, if you remember. Essentially, we had a lot of snow in the city. And, you know, certain streets get plowed for other streets. And typically, it's streets with uh, a lot of money. In this case, the upper... Who, East, get, who get the plows. Who, oh, yeah, who get the plows. In this case, a lot of people complain because the Upper East Side, which is typically where a lot of wealthy people live, did not get plowed into a little bit later. So there was some criticism there, mm -hmm. I think. Well, I think you said a lot of people complain. I think the people of the Upper East Side complain <laughs> Sorry, that, that, that their streets hadn't been properly and quickly cleaned. But aside from his own little snowmageddon, you know, I think it's interesting <laughs> that he was campaigning on this, quote, tale of two cities. That was the direction that he took his campaign last year, which also fed off of a lot of the Occupy Wall Street. And and it's still a relevant, relevant story today. When we look at the other things that are on our list here that we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. I think that the fact that our mayor came in with this tale of two cities mantra makes a lot of sense and is, is an interesting guide through the different turbulent matters that we're dealing with right now. During the first quarter of 2014, we had a bit of a scandal that made uh, the national press, a.k.a. Bridgegate, involving shutting down some lanes on the George Washington Bridge. Right. And shortly thereafter, we released a podcast on the history of the mm -hmm. George Washington Bridge back in March. So 
That story is interesting because it really sort of blew up at the end of 2013 and is still very much with us. Yeah, and it, it will remain into next year if uh, if Mr. Christie has has ambitions towards the White House. So well, we'll fact, see if this comes up. In May of this year, New York got a new museum and a very somewhat controversial, some would say. The 9-11 Memorial Museum finally opened. And the memorial itself, the fountains that were constructed in the footprints of the old Twin Towers had already opened at this point. One of the big issues with the museum involves the gift shop, actually, the memorabilia, the souvenirs that you could buy there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people took offense at some of the things they were selling, thinking it was tasteless and inappropriate because you're in this place and feeling all these very strong, mournful feelings. And all of a sudden there's like, you know, a cutting board. That kind of thing. Right. There were some people had an issue with that. Have you been to the museum this I, year? I've only been. I've only visited the the monument itself, the fountains, um, and found those quite profound. But that was last year, right? So the I did go into the museum. I liked the museum. I, I thought it was actually a very moving museum, and I would actually recommend. Um, anyone listening to this, when you come to New York, to check it out if you feel you need to go there. But I will say, I don't think I'll ever need to go back there again. It you know, brought back a lot of stark memories of that particular time. And that is quite obviously a very sensitive topic uh, to New Yorkers. And that's one of the reasons that we have not really addressed it in a podcast, which is, I think, um, kind of interesting perhaps for listeners because people do ask us well what are you going to do at the trade center would 9-11 as a topic i think we'll spring it at an unexpected moment because i feel like the history of the world trade center is really interesting and valuable Mm -hmm. and i think that as the freedom tower opens yeah mm -hmm. it's this ongoing story which brings us as well to then the opening of the freedom tower otherwise known as one world trade center which officially opened on November 3rd as the tallest skyscraper in the Western Hemisphere, clocking in at 1,776 feet tall. And it gained its first tenant. Its first tenant moved in uh, in November, Condé Nast, uh, moved down from, Tom, from Times Square. Yeah, And I want to add that, you know, living in the Lower East Side, I'm quite pleased to look down the street. I can look down from my fire escape, I can look down Division Street and see One World Trade Center in basically the same spot that I used to be able to sit out on my fire escape and look down and see the Twin Towers. So that was something that's very personal. That was very hard for me for many, many years to to look out the window and not see these giant buildings that I had become so accustomed to. Well, I imagine that a lot of New Yorkers did a double take the first time they saw the new tower, like Mm. really gain a certain amount of height where you could see it from different places. I know that I did. Which brings us to, I think, some other towers that are popping up around town that have grabbed some headlines in 2014. So, yeah, this is this is one that's very strangely enough personal for me, and I'll tell you why. What's happening right now in Midtown, and in particular around the corridor of 57th Street. Okay, are, by which you mean up and down 57th. Up and down 57th, from one side to the other of Manhattan, mm-hmm. correct. There are a series of very unique skyscrapers that are being built, or they've started being built, uh, and will probably all be completed, at least this cluster of buildings that they call Billionaire's Row, um, will be completed by around 2018. Billionaire's Row. I mean, that sounds 
uh, so glamorous and repulsive at the same time. <laughs> yes. These are being built in tandem in conjunction with each other? What, no, no. These, these are, are these independent are, projects. These are independent projects that just happen to have been granted permission to build mm-hmm. around the same time. Now, not for nothing, the word New Gilded Age has been tossed around uh, in the past couple years because there is a lot of wealth being attracted to New York right now. Having a spacious, glorious apartment is a nice big investment mm-hmm. here in New York City. To be fair, of course, there's been a lot of wealth that's been attracted to New York for a really long sure, time. Sure. But it seems like with financial instability throughout the world, a, a New York apartment, a Manhattan apartment is always a solid investment. So at my day job, which we'll talk about that later in the show, at my day job, I work on 56 and Madison. Right on my window, every day of the year has sprouted this gigantic skyscraper at the corner of 56 and Park. That's actually the infamous 432 Park Avenue. It is now, because I believe it's certainly not finished, it'll be completed next year, but I think that the height is finished. It is now the tallest residential structure in the world. It is taller than the Empire State Building. It's hard to even fathom. The building is 96 stories tall. And the other weird thing about it is it's super tall, but very slender. It's taking up a very small amount of actual ground real estate, Mm -hmm. oddly enough. Like a really, really tall matchstick. (laughs) So there's actually a few of these being built along 57th Street or around 57th Street. In fact, down the road, they're actually building one that's going to be taller than the one here on Park Avenue. So this 96-story building better just enjoy this woman in the limelight while it's got it. So the weird thing here, in a way... Do we want these? Do we want these huge structures? Well, I have a few thoughts about this. On one hand, it reminds me a little bit of these growth spurts that New York occasionally has, right? Down, for instance, in Wall Street at the turn of the century, a growth spurt that gave us like the Woolworth Building, for instance. Another great surge of building construction happened in the 1920s, which gave us, of course, the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. Those were also offices. This is residential, and most of these places go for millions and millions of dollars and will not be even occupied for much of the year. These buildings will have a serious effect on Central Park because their shadows will then be cast down upon the southern side of the park, although very, very narrow shadows. Mm -hmm. But then there's a bigger... Shadows nonetheless. But shadows nonetheless. But there's a bigger question here, and that is the skyline. And who gets to to define the skyline, right? I mean, on one hand, these are private contractors, these are private buildings, they can build whatever they want. Yeah, with their permits. Island. If with they got permits. the permit, they can right. build it. There's, We have no problem with that. But when you have a series of these, it's going to permanently disrupt the skyline. The skyline is always changing. This is something we all kind of own and control, and yet we are powerless to actually preserve and change it ourselves, unless you have a big bank account. So it's kind of ironic here that we've celebrated the alteration of the of the skyline on one hand with the opening of One World Trade Center. On the other hand, we're a little bit ambivalent, if not downright crotchety, about these new billionaires' buildings that are going up on 57th. And by the way, this this parking of money that's affecting New York is not just for the super, super wealthy. Sure. I, I'd just like to point out that all over town, in all of the boroughs, people are parking money for investments from all over the world. 
I have a dear friend in Chelsea who's in you know living in this situation where in his residential building of four or five floors, you know, he he's lived in this building for 20 years and suddenly he doesn't have any neighbors anymore. All the neighbors have sold out to people who are parking their money there and maybe visit a couple weeks a year and he was on the board, he still is on the board. He's basically the only person on the board because he's the only one who's ever in town. So there is something sort of sad about this too, just in terms of what it's doing to communities and to the community atmosphere in a building when your neighbors are investments. Well, I'm sure a lot of those neighbors moved out to the outer boroughs to all the quote-unquote hot neighborhoods of the moment. And what are those neighborhoods, Greg? Well, I mean, so obviously we're now at the point of the show where we're talking about gentrification mm-hmm. and you know what constitutes a new hot neighborhood on the scale of the amount of money, the rent hikes that can be made on certain buildings. And of course, you know, there's a certain hipness level of bars, restaurants, that kind of thing that sort of take over and kind of eradicate what might have been there before. So prior to 2014, we've already had lots of different neighborhoods that have been gentrified. What are the neighborhoods? And by that, I'm thinking, you know, Williamsburg ages ago, a decade ago, Lower East Side, you know, these are years past. So what are the neighborhoods in 2014 that you felt were we're sort of on the cusp of well, or well, yeah, the I mean, forefront of gentrification. It's, uh, it's it's all kind of speculation because mm-hmm. so I live in Cobble Hill and which is a place that's been lo- gentrified for the past few years. People are trying to find the new neighborhood uh, so they Cobble can Hill's quite expensive. Well, so they can make everything else expensive, right? So, you know, as a result, then the residents of those other places then have to move out or just have to take on another job just to live there. So, you have neighborhoods like Gowanus, Crown Heights, Bedstyer, neighborhoods that have been bandied around Ridgewood. So even it's being bridged into Queens. Even right. the Bronx are now being looked at as like quote unquote new hot neighborhoods, which is obnoxious. Let's be, <laughs> let's just be frank here. You know, to, to, even the word hot kind of makes my skin crawl. I saw that Lonely Planet just recently called Queens like the hottest new destination. Yeah, well, to visit. I love, well, yeah, I love Queens. Now, I mean, I don't know what that means necessarily. If, if that means all the rents are in a story are going to like double next year, well, hopefully that's not true. On the Brian Lehrer show, I think it was last week on WNYC, a caller from Queens said on this very topic said, um, well, that's great. You can visit Queens and spend your money in Queens Mm -hmm. and then get the hell out of Queens. (laughs) Don't buy a house here, he said. I overheard someone on the subway just a couple weeks ago, which was heading out to Bay Ridge. Um, I was getting out before that. But listening to these two guys talking about how, oh, yeah, Bay Ridge is the next hot neighborhood. I have a couple of friends moving down there. We found some great apartments. Everyone's moving down there. Meanwhile, I'm looking around Everyone around me is going to Bay Ridge, where they already live. Like, people already live there. You didn't discover anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's a very frustrating, maddening thing, because on one hand, what goes along with it is sometimes safer streets. Sometimes the crime level goes down. It is nice to have an increased number of amenities, to have more places where you can eat. On the other hand, it right. does eliminate what made those neighborhoods special, and it inconveniences the people who had already lived there. And at the same time, I mean, we can't have this conversation without recognizing that we have also been a force of gentrification in the neighborhoods in which we've lived. 
I moved into the Lower East Side in 1997, and I'm sure that people, you know, I was fresh out of college, and I'm sure that people on the same block as me rolled their eyes when they saw <laughs> me, like, roll up with my first bags and, you know, my wide-eyed enthusiasm. And and you moved in a couple, yeah, a couple, years, a couple later. years later, and we saw the neighborhood change. We saw our favorite neighborhood diner disappear and be replaced by a more expensive restaurant. And I've seen tons of my favorite shops disappear and be replaced by upscale restaurants, another bar, another sort of artisanal coffee shop, etc. Some of those places I go to. So it's a very complicated, <laughs> complicated story. And the city has to change and it has to keep evolving. It has to keep morphing into something else for it to live. And some of the things that are moving in are kind of strange am i crazy as, as i was walking here is there a cat cafe yes like for cats what strikes you, you as odd like you about take, that Greg? but like you take a cat to a cafe no 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 like no. you have like tea okay with muffins okay stop you're talking about the meow parlor which just opened on hester street around the corner which is a pretty good example of Something. I mean, it's something new. It's based on a pop-up shop. The cats are already there, so okay. it's a place for you to to go and hang out. But right, the meow parlor um, replaced might something. Replaced something <laughs> from the neighborhood that was probably not a, a cat cafe. So maybe at this time we'll we'll give a short in memoriam section to some significant places. Now most of these are private businesses, but they have been here. They've added something to New York. It's kind of like, like the Oscars. Is this the the sort of <laughs> yeah Oscars montage? It is a little bit. But imagine it like this. Imagine a choir. It's your mm-hmm. favorite choir, and they sing all the songs that you love, and they bring something to music that no one else brings. And then slowly, one by one, members of that choir disappear and either never come back or they're replaced by newer, younger members. And so all of a sudden, you turn around and you wake up and you listen and you're like, wait a minute, I don't recognize this tune anymore. Who are, what are they singing? Now, for instance, in January of 2014, we lost the very first Barnes & Noble, the original Barnes & Noble that opened in 1886, originally Arthur Hines & Company, and a book clerk, Arthur Noble, was made a partner and then brought in William Barnes. Now, this was at 105 Fifth Avenue. This is 105 Fifth Avenue. It closed this year. Now, I mean, we don't usually look at Barnes & Noble as something we want to necessarily protect. Sometimes it runs out bookstores, but this was the very first one. And they've been shuttering their stores all over the city and all over the country, so I guess it's not a big surprise. We should be a little bit more afraid of places like Rizzoli's Bookstore closing, which it it did, in fact, in March. I think it's moving to another location. But the sad part about this is they had a beautiful bookstore with a that was from the 1960s with beautiful intricate carvings on the wall, almost like an old Italian fresco. One of the most beautiful accessible interiors on 57th Street. So it's amusing or sad that it would be gone on the same street that all these crazy skyscrapers are going on. In January, the one that really hit me hard on Prince Street was Milady's. Now, Milady's... Milady's was a bar. Okay, that was that was maybe my favorite bar in the city. Well, it was from the 1940s. I mean, what was Soho in the 1940s? I mean, that was it was a rugged place. Mm-hmm. And that's why I loved it. <laughs> and and it had great tater tots. It had friendly waitresses. It had decent veggie burgers. 
It had <laughs> miserable food, but it was great. It was so, great. So we're just going to become nostalgia hour here. Let me run down really quickly. Like in March, we lost the Roseland Ballroom, mm-hmm. which is where I saw Madonna perform. In April, we lose Pearl Paint, which was this seminal place for artists and art students. And it, it seemed like a set out of the Muppet Show, you know, because they had these creaky old stairs that you would climb up. You know, you were always on the wrong floor at Pearl Paint. You know, you you needed to get some <laughs> paint. Well, now that's up on fire. And then you get to five. No, it's down on four. It, well, it, it was, was a little ragged by the end, but I still loved oh, it. Oh, it was great. Out in Brooklyn, we lost the Kentile floor sign, which is, you know, that's not a business that was around anymore. It was this famous old sign that you saw from the subway every time that you took the F train and you circled around it. It was the character of Gowanus. It was uh, torn down, regrettably. So it's like we barely have any of those signs anymore. And I'm just going to jump ahead here through September and October and November into December, where I feel like the East Village lost sort of a trifecta and a trifecta of places that I I dearly loved. These three places were affordable. They were kind of, you know, endearing, a little bit dumpy, and they're gone. I'm speaking about the Yaffa Cafe on St. Mark Street, Benny's Burritos, which I just get choked up. <laughs> Saying that that's closed. How, how many hours of research of this podcast have I done on Benny's burritos? Ugh, how many margaritas were? <laughs> was I hoping the bartender forgot that he had already served me? Yes. Now, to be fair, there is a little takeout joint mm-hmm. that's right next to it. Yeah. But the Benny's burritos on the corner gone. Gone. And Di Roberti's on First Avenue, the great pastry shop, the great late pastry shop. Gone. It had been open for 110 years. Tom, it was the very first place in New York that I had a cannoli. Really? Yes. Venero's is still around the corner, but it... And should Bart- be supported. And should be supported even more so. Right, just across um, the street. But this was a this is a terrible loss. So I'm kind of depressed, Greg. I mean, here <laughs> we are at the end of what we lost in 2014. I mean... Well, since I'm, we're talking about things we've we've lost, how about a few people that we've lost? Oh my God! <laughs> this is the can year, we pour ourselves like, a drink? <laughs> pour one here. This is the year that we lost people who have added the, to the richness of New York City. People like Pete Seeger and Maya Angelou, Lauren Bacall, and Joan Rivers. And of those four, three of those four were born and died in New York. Mm-hmm. Pete Seeger, Lauren Bacall, and Joan Rivers. Maya Angelou, however, did spend much of her career here. Lauren Bacall spent her most of her life at the Dakota Apartments. And, so- and, and Joan Rivers was born in Brooklyn, died, of course, in Manhattan. That was another big, shocking event that still seems very sad and strange. But you know what we did gain? So we lost all of these great voices, these icons, but we gained... Taylor Swift, one of the official New York tourist ambassadors of the city. And if you are listening to this right now, Taylor, we offer you a seat to be a guest host um, on the Bowery Boys. Anytime you Anytime. want. Ms. Swift was born in 1989 in, in the great state of Pennsylvania. You know, another thing that we need to talk about in terms of the year in review, when people look back at 2014, I think that they will say that was a year that people were demonstrating For a number of reasons, in the street, more than 300,000 people came to New York City on Sunday, September 21st, to demonstrate in the People's Climate March, which was a great event. It was the largest climate change march in history. More than 1,500 organizations from around the world sent people. It was a a great, if (laughs) slow-moving 
March. Right, you I were joined, in it. Yes. I joined around 72nd Street. Mm-hmm. It was fun. I have to say, to to be a part of this, it was it was inspiring. But it it also had that kind of fun energy. And that was a planned protest, right? I mean, that yes. had been planned for several months. Then there were the protests surrounding the two instances that happened in November and December of grand juries deciding not to indict police officers. One, of course, in Ferguson, Missouri, and then the other one in Staten Island involving the death of Eric Garner. Now, this had unleashed a lot of spontaneous protests throughout several days, but then there was there were a little more concentrated organized protests that then happened afterwards as well and actually are still happening. And finally, I don't think we should forget the Ebola outbreak of 2014, something that was, of course, not really an outbreak, but in New York City, you would not have known that. It was almost like a zombie apocalypse. Now, to be to be fair here, of course, it's still very much an ongoing situation and an international health crisis. But the way that the news media responded to the Ebola, quote unquote, outbreak coming to New York City was downright irresponsible. It was also the politicians who were up for election just a week later. It was around that time. Do you remember the bowling alley in Williamsburg that was evacuated Mm -hmm. during that crisis because uh, a a man who had the symptoms of Ebola and then was since cured of them had bowled around there one one evening? Well, he had also famously strolled the High Line, taken the subway, had (laughs) drinks with friends in a bar. What a great day, it sounds like. Yeah, and I I think that that kind of wraps up our 2014 year in review. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of other things to talk about, including the the questions that we've gotten from listeners. We're going to answer some past, of those, yes. And a quick review of the podcast that we recorded in 2014. And finally, our resolution to help promote and protect New York City and what you can do from wherever you're listening to this right now, what you can do to help support the cause of history and preservation. More on that after the break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, 
and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So let's talk about us. Let's talk about our, our favorite shows, the, 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 the things that we like the best that we've recorded this year. The favorite shows of the Bowery Boys this year. <laughs> uh, None no, of other. I was talking my off-Broadway show. What were you talking about? Okay. Well, we did 15 shows in 2014. Uh, so which one was your favorite this year? Like, which one is your personal favorite of the ones we recorded together? I don't know. I'm looking over this list. You know, the research phase of all of them, like the George Washington Bridge was fun because I was literally walking out onto the bridge and walking back and forth and taking notes of that thing. But Astor Place Riots was on Ladies Mile was quite mm-hmm. a, was quite fun. I enjoyed the process to the keys of Gramercy Park because <laughs> you and I anytime we meet before recording, I, I always enjoy that. And, and go that, to the place, yes. And go mm-hmm. to the place and, and like walk together. And we walked around that with our coffee. Those were all, I, th- I think, highlights. Oh, and, and Valentino. Mm-hmm. That was a, a great show, uh, The Life and Death of Rudolph Valentino back I was in August. G- I was going to say that, first of all, I mean, I, I loved the show I did with Matthew. That, that turned out really well at the, oh, world, the World's Fair recording out there was, in Queens. That was a great show. In terms of the shows that you and I have done, I think my favorite might be the Astor Place Riots because I just liked going to that place and creating that world and that environment and it's just such a it's still to me a very inconceivable event Mm -hmm. and then in terms of sort of my solo shows that I did this year although of course I have a soft spot for Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr I have to say that the General Slocum disaster show although very very depressing was just very moving and I was kind of affected for a few days after recording that and having to dive deep into that tragic research. This has always been an event that's fascinated me and it really frustrates me that there isn't like a real place to go and properly pay your respects in a way that I think should be done in New York. But wait, Greg, we forgot another great one, Cleopatra's Needle. That's a summertime show. That we were kind of in the mood. We were taking off on trips after that. And by the way, did I tell you that I went inside the Freemasons headquarters at 23rd Street oh, right. and 5th yeah. Avenue a couple months later, and they have a gigantic mural with 
Cleopatra's needle on it, which leads me to believe that there are more secrets to unearth. But, you know, the Bowery Boys, thanks to Greg, are more than this podcast. We're also the blog and the Facebook page and Twitter. So you've had a number of big things happen on on the blog this year. Well, just one thing I wanted to add because it kind of ties them all up was this television show. We forgot to mention sort of the pop cultural things that happened in New York, but one of them that it was significant for us, for the Bowery Boys, was The Nick on Cinemax, which was this great turn-of-the-century medical drama with Clive Owen as a drug-rattled surgeon. It's kind of a gory show, but a very well-done, very well-crafted show. Tweeting during the show and interacting with people who were engaged with the show and with the pe- listeners was really incredible. So well, that was my you highlight. Were interacting with people in the show. In the show, yes. And parts of the TV show were shot down here in the neighborhood. So I even walked through the sets. They took over Orchard Street for yeah. a while. So speaking of the blog, we reached out to people on the blog and also on the Facebook page asking if they had questions for us for this specific Holiday Roundup show. So, well, I'll start with one and you'll ask me one and then we'll just, you know, we'll do a round table. Um, So a question from Trisha. Quote, my question is, how did the two of you meet and start the podcast? Were you already friends and discovered you both had a mutual admiration for history or did a love of history bring you together (laughs) i wish i could say for the sake of this podcast that a love of new york city history brought us together but in fact i think it was a love of a cool roommate that brought us together as we've foreshadowed earlier in the show greg and i met because greg was my sister's college roommate at the university of missouri yes so i was at the university of missouri columbia getting my journalism degree my roommate was Tom's sister, Elizabeth, and the first time that I met Tom, you were actually still in high school. Yes, I am significantly younger than Greg. <laughs> That's significantly. <laughs> That's, I just I, wanted to try I that one out. objection to that. Um, but, a couple uh, years. <laughs> but anyway, so but we actually ended up moving to New York around the same time, Tom for Columbia University, where you graduated from. And then I just moved here because I was a wayward soul and drifted into my uh, first apartment at uh, Park and 23rd Street. But then we started hanging out together and becoming fast friends. Flash forward to the year 2007, when we both lived down here in the Lower East Side, three blocks away from each other. I had just gotten this new fancy MacBook and it had this little program called GarageBand. So we wanted to put on a show together. I was deeply into American history, although a lot of my focus at that time had been revolutionary war, was well, early you were, history. You were also reading the book on the Supreme Court at that time, were oh, you? Oh, yeah, I was... A, and yeah, Alexander was, yes. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So All of that. Th- that's yes. right, you were there. <laughs> and I was more focused on Broadway. And even before this, Greg, you and I had talked about doing an internet radio yeah. show on Broadway. On Broadway, What, what, what yeah. was happening on Broadway. So that didn't happen, but instead we recorded uh, the first show, which we called, not the Bowery Boys, but um, <laughs> New, York cast New York Cast or something like that. And it was on the history of Canal Street. Yeah, the first episode is riddled with errors. And I mean, <laughs> although it's, we may list, release it one day just for hilarious, giggles. for giggles, but it's not very informative. And we sort of got our act together. A few episodes into the show, we were kind of recognized by iTunes, who prom- give us a little promotion. 
and and that's where we've been and, and hopefully building on that since then. So thank you for Thank you, Trisha. Thank you for your question. So I have a question for you, Greg. Mm-hmm. And this comes from Amy. Do you do this full-time or do you have other full-time positions elsewhere? And how much of the show is scripted and how much is spontaneous? Oh. Well, let's start with the first part. I wish I could say that I did this full-time because of, trust me, if I could. I wish you could say too. (laughs) We would generate so many more shows, so much more content, um, and it would be like better than ever. But we do have, we both do have day jobs. Tom, the aforementioned Eurocheapo. I work for a large corporation within the music industry doing music licensing. And I've actually been doing that for a long time, since the late 90s. And it's because of that job, of course, that I'm able to do this, that I'm able to have a financial support because, you know, we don't have that here. But I do hope that in the near future, this can start bringing in a little bit more of that. You know, I could do a show like this once a week. There's so many opportunities with every topic that we bring up. It just fosters a love of five more subjects that I could possibly get into. Well, look at the list of things we just talked about from 2014. Each of those things could be its own show. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but in terms of scripted versus on the fly, spontaneous, it's interesting. So, what happens is Greg and I usually come up with the topic, and somebody else asked us about how we come up with the topics. So, I'll jump to that one. We usually come up with the topic ahead of time, usually just kind of kicking around ideas to each other. And then Greg writes out an outline, trying to break down the topic into six or seven points, kind of tame it a little bit. Tame the topic. And then we kind of email it back and forth to each other. There might be some adjustments. But that is really the last that we talk to each other about that topic. We have to clarify here that in that six-point breakdown, parts are assigned. So Greg might have the first part. I might have the second. There was a a long time where I would do the situates. Do you remember? (laughs) That was always our first first point was situate the listener. And we would obviously know the whole history. But, you know, what the magic can be sometimes is the little anecdotes the the things that you have to dig into the history to really get to and i think that those are the things that people appreciate the most those are the things that we focus on when we kind of assign parts because obviously we like we know the overarching history of the things that we do right so so in terms of what the notes in front of us have a lot of times those have just facts and figures and dates and names and things like that because God knows, you know, once you start recording, all those details can be jumbled up. So it's helpful to have them in front of you. But I think the best moments of the show are probably when we get really excited and we're not <laughs> looking at all at the next. Yeah, and most of the show, I mean, in terms of, I mean, we have a bunch of like corny gags. Most of those are on the spot. I would say probably a couple are like... I was like, I would bring in a corny joke and spring it on you and be, you'd be like, well, Greg, you sound like you scripted that. And so they don't really work. What works is when it truly is a conversation where it truly sounds like we're sitting at the end of a bar talking about something that we're passionate about. Having said that, Greg scripted that entire sentence. <laughs> Actually, there's someone, like a small person standing behind Tom with cue cards and was furiously throwing them and like was trying to keep up. But uh, thank you. Thank you, George. Bye. You can go. Bye. Bye. All right. So question. If you could take another crack at any one of your shows, 174 shows, which one would that be? And of course, how would it be different? 
I think a glaring example of one that needs to be redone would be the Alexandra Hamilton episode, <laughs> oh, which is yeah. maybe episode three or four. That five? one, that it's a monumental topic that we treated like but, a handful of facts. I just sound yeah. We, we I'm didn't know what we were that. really doing, so that would probably come up. And then you know, I'm proud of the Robert Moses number one hundred episode, but. I'm also recognizing that later on we would break things into series. We we could dig deeper into that. We did almost an hour on the Rockettes, okay? True. And then we did an hour on Robert Moses. I, I feel like we could break that into three parts and, and do more justice to Jane Jacobs. So I have a lot of solo shows, and a lot of those could have been duo shows, and mm-hmm. I think that they should. For instance... I don't know what came over me when I turned the Flatiron Building into a solo show. That is one of the most important landmarks in New York City. That needs to be... We need to blow that one out into a full and proper topic. Let's do it. I do have to say that there are sometimes shows that... You know, you can't include every little piece of information. The shows can't be two hours, right? We we do record for two hours sometimes, (laughs) Sometimes and then Greg edits them down. But the, for instance, the South Street Seaport episode, we actually got called out by someone, and I think this is fair that we completely left out the fact that there happened to be a, a terrible slave market in the late 18th century that was around there as well. And I think that that, if I could go back and insert things into shows, I mm-hmm. definitely would because it's just one of those things like you're putting a show together, you're putting your notes and ideas together. And, you know, sometimes just a couple things fall out and it's not really intentional and you want to you wish that everything could be a novel length, complete evaluation of a subject. But sometimes that happens. And so certainly there are a few instances of that. Now, a question from Chip for you, Greg. Mm -hmm. If the two of you could have dinner with four other characters from any era of New York City history, who would they be? Four yeah, four. Just choose four or five or six. I mean, Chip asked for four. Well, I mean, obviously, obviously, Alexander Hamilton has okay. to be there. I would maybe number two would be Madam C.J. Walker, the the Harlem entrepreneur who was basically one of New York's first African-American millionaires. Sounds like a podcast right there. (laughs) Yes, maybe I'll go off and do it now. Number three might be Emma Goldman. Oh, um, yeah. Because she'd shake up the dinner party, I think. And then, you know, just to kind of make it interesting and have a, you know, like a a modern person there, maybe I would have like uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that table right now. <laughs> we may not be have a lot of conversation or who knows what will happen. I had a hard time getting it down to four. I wanted Jane Jacobs. I also wanted George Templeton Strong. Mm, good one. Because he's always keeping impeccable notes of everything. Mm-hmm. The famed diarist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Cooper, the, they were friends, so maybe he's too much of the same era. P.T. Barnum would be up there. Well, he has to be at your dinner table, right? I think he'd be there... Either P.T. Barnum or Harry Houdini, and probably Florence Ziegfeld. And <laughs> I would like to pull up a fifth chair for Robert Moses, just because I think he would be such a grumpy addition to the table, but fascinating, and he'd have a lot to say. So obviously, waiter, another bottle of champagne for that table, clearly. <laughs> Quick. That. So, so our last letter is from Pete from Wales. New York City has lost a few landmarks for mostly economic reasons. 
The one close to my heart is CBGB's, which I used to visit in the 1990s. I'm not naive to the economic pressures of a city with real estate positively booming, but are there more venues or landmarks that are close to being lost? And what are your thoughts on this? And how might they be saved? Now, that's a huge question. Right, there's a lot. And we've kind of talked yeah. about this in different aspects right now. I feel like it, answering it takes us into the final part of the show. Which is what I wanted to get to. So, Pete, our answer, I think, will be in what I'm calling the resolutions. The sort of 10 pieces of advice that I would give to people who live here, people who don't live here, but people who love history. And these could be applied to New York City or even just wherever you live. If you have a passion for the heritage of the place that you're from or the place that you're currently living in, I think these could also apply to you as well. So so these are the Bowery Boys' 10 resolutions for making New York a better place in 2015. Mm-hmm. Take now, it. Now, these are, these are things to do or just mindsets to take on. Number one, and this is the most self-serving, but it is important. Number one, learn New York history and then talk about history. So this is not just listening to a podcast or reading a certain book, but engaging others in the idea of history because it's important to everyone who lives in a particular place, like especially with New York City, and engaging others might inspire them to to also go down the this beautiful rabbit hole of history which brings us to number two specifically read jane jacobs death and life of great american cities this is her 1961 critique of american urban planning uh in the mid-20th century she was way ahead of her time it's a great read so if you need a suggestion pick up a little jane jacobs and uh, and you'll see how she was a visionary Number three, do what Jane Jacobs would have done, protest and speak out. So if there's a a landmark that you love that's endangered, a business, something that means something to you, don't just lament and go, oh, I love that place. Oh, well, actually see what you can do. Because sometimes it can be just one person that can actually make that difference. I mean, we are talking, sometimes it can be a private business, but it can just be one more voice that can be added into the mix and could change the fate of something. And number four, which applies to this, look into a community group. There are plenty of community groups that are open. These are New York-based history and preservationist groups that are open to people around the world. So... There are a number of them to get involved in from the Municipal Arts Society or the Victorian Society of New York, which um, is all about preserving Victorian architecture in New York City. Now, number five is a big one because it requires looking into a mirror. Number five, identifying where you might be the problem. So, again... Part of the problem. Part of the problem. Because you, you know, might be part of a, a gentrification force. It's important to know where you stand so that you can use that platform to influence others. And one way you can do this is number six, by spending your money locally, especially if you're in New York, obviously, spending on small businesses in your neighborhood that need your support in order to continue paying their rents and stand up to their home landlord. And maybe it's not in your neighborhood. Maybe you need to take advantage of our next point, which is number seven, get 
out of your neighborhood. Push your regular boundaries when wandering around town and and explore new parts of town that maybe weren't on your radar before. Just I would recommend, actually, I mean, I'm a big walker in this city and I try to wander miles a week if I can. Just get out maybe two subway stops before your house or wherever you're staying and just explore and just learn another neighborhood. I guess expand your horizons. Number eight, get a little outraged. You know what? It is okay to be angry when your favorite Italian pastry shop is closing. It's all right. And spread that anger. Let people be slightly annoyed on your Facebook page, I think, because that can only inspire conversation and it can also influence other people who some one of them might be able to do something about the next place that's slated to close. And one of those people might be number nine, a young person. Get young people and new arrivals in the city excited about the city's history. And that's important because every day there are kids moving here for school. There are lots of people moving as soon as they graduate or changing careers and moving to the city. They are looking for a home base and they're they're looking to feel at home in New York and they are a great opportunity to spread the word about New York's exciting history. And I have to say that maybe the new generation, the uh, those in their 20s and early 30s now are incredibly interested and excited in history in a way that I don't think generations even our own generation was. And I'm really heartened and encouraged by that, especially with the reaction with listeners of the show. Um, who are in their 20s. And I can only hope that they're able to join some of these community groups, where which tend to be older crowds. And so I think that having that... New energy. Yeah, mm-hmm. And finally, number 10 resolution, is that some places will always go away. Some places will always go away, but New York will never die. So... It will be sad when sometimes a place closes that you you love, when 10 places close that you love, and that will be maybe even concerning, but that New York, the spirit of New York, the history of New York, what makes New York City one of the greatest cities in the world, that will never go away. And part of living here has always been to accept that the city changes, the changes happen, and that there will be new things that come along to get excited about. And on that hopeful note, I think we wrap up our 2014 holiday party. Greg, that we, is, we just our, nonstop yeah. talking. I think we forgot <laughs> to actually do this. Wait, hold on. Here. There we go. That was our celebratory uh, year in review wine. Where is that from? This it's, is Italian. Oh, it's not New York. You could have gotten this from Red Hook Winery. Seems, seems like a betrayal after we just talked about shopping locally. <laughs> well, I bought it from the local wine shop, September Wine. There we go. Oh, there we go. Yes, there we go. There we go. So thank you for joining us, not just for this episode, but for this entire year. And a special thank you to those who have been with us for many years. Check us out on the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, which in the next couple months will be going through, I hope, some exciting changes. You can also find us on Facebook and join us on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And with that, have a great 2015, whether you live here or not. See you next year. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. 
the early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.